0: Uh, If you have your Bibles, take them, please, and turn to uh, Psalm 19 this morning. Psalm 19, it's uh, a beautiful, uh, again, reminder of so many things about God, and the Psalms are rich. I hope that your experience has been my experience, and that I have been uh, amazed again and again how quickly I have read over the Scriptures and realized what is underneath them, if I would just spend some time there. I realize something of the beauty of God and the character of God that's revealed in the hymns and prayers of God's people. I think something of the stubbornness of my own soul that is revealed in these psalms as we go through them. I also am so thankful for the way that Christ is revealed through these psalms again and again in our in our lives. And as we come to read the psalms, I, I think there's an experience of an intimacy that Is described about our faith and about a dependency that we have upon the living God who has given us his word and who walks with us. And this description of God that is given to us and a relationship that is described that is compelling, that it draws us into a desire for a greater and greater experience of a relationship with God. We've ended each of the Psalms the last uh, two weeks with uh, uh, amazing. Um, reminders of how we continue to dive into that relationship. Barry preached on Psalm 139 a couple weeks ago, a psalm which he uh, opened up as God's knowledge of us being so full and complete, and yet his care and love of us not wavering a second. And that psalm ends with this phrase, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there be any offensive way in me and lead me into the way after everlasting. It's an invitation for God to further search us and reveal ourselves without fear of being discarded by God. And then Psalm 107, uh, the last verse of that psalm, is we consider the loving kindness of God, the way that God rescues us when we're in trouble and we cry out to him. The psalm ends with this reminder, let him who is wise pay attention to these things and consider the acts of the Lord's faithful love. To look at the ways that God has demonstrated his loving kindness to us in his deliverances of us, in his keepings of us. And then this psalm, as it ends, we'll just end with these words. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord. Just constant reminders that draw us in to a personal relationship with God. And so Psalm 19, the writer there is David and he notes these things. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sin. Let them not have dominion over me then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Father, thank you for the way that you have made yourself known to humankind. We see it in this word how you make yourself known through what you have made. You make yourself known through what you have said and you make yourself known through who you have sent. Father, enlarge our awareness of you. Open our ears to listen to the ways that you have made yourself known. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. The psalmist can be approached, or the psalms can be approached from two or three different perspectives. One has noticed that there are psalms of what we might call disorientation. They address those circumstances and situations in our life when we find ourselves so totally disorientated from what is going on in the world around us that in the words of Isaiah, we might say, I'm undone. My life is a mess. Sometimes that disorientation can last for hours, days, weeks, months, and sometimes even for years. And the psalmist describes these kind of experiences in various psalms of Scripture. One, Psalm 13, gives us an illustration of a psalm of disorientation where the psalmist says, How long, O Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Awful times when we feel disconnected, discombobulated. And then there's psalms of reorientation. A number of the songs speak about ways that God gets a hold of us and he reverses the circumstances of our life. When we're at our wits end, like Psalm 107, God answers us and he comes to us in our trouble and he brings our life into a new perspective. He doesn't set us where we were, but he sets us in a new place and he reorients our thinking and our living. There's beautiful psalms that describe this reality of reorientation. And then there's simply songs, psalms which are psalms of orientation. They're those uh, psalms which speak of creation and wisdom and of the favor of God. Psalms which, as we read them, they just kind of make us relax in comfort and to breathe. The psalms of ascent would be psalms of orientation. Psalm 8, where he describes the, uh, the wonder that God has made man so beautiful and so magnificent. Psalm 19 is a psalm of orientation. It describes a place of contentment. It describes a place of wonder and of awe. And one individual wrote, if you get the building blocks of this psalm into your life, if you understand what David is getting at, even in a small way, you get them into your life, you will find that your life is both simplified and clarified as you live in a sometimes dangerous, often mysterious world. This psalm really is a, a, a light to our feet and a lamp to our path and making our way through this world in which we live. In the psalm, there's a couple of things that are taking place. It's a psalm about revelation. And when we talk about revelation, what we're talking about, how has God made himself known? Some people will say, well, God hasn't spoken to me. God hasn't made himself known. I can't find him everywhere. Well, the psalm would differ with that viewpoint. The Psalm would say, no, God has made himself known. He has revealed himself to humankind. And we see that in this psalm. In verses 1 to 6, the psalmist talks about the book of nature or the world book of God. And the fact that God has displayed his glory and his wonder and his power and his might in the things that he has made in this world in which we live. And so, so much so that we are without excuse We can't ever say to God when we will face him one day, well, you never revealed yourself to me. And God would say, well, what did you hear when you looked at the sun? What did you hear when you looked at the galaxies? What did you hear when you looked at the intricacies of the eye? When you looked at the amazing bodies that God has created? What did you hear? But the psalmist will also talk about the revelation of God to the human heart in his word. In verses 7 to 9, he talks about the the revelation of God in Scripture, in the word book of God. The world book describes the majesty of God. The word book describes for us the word of God. And as it penetrates our heart, demonstrates how we should live. And so consider the thought of simply then what we should see when we look at the world around us. We should experience something of the weight of God. We should realize something of the glory of God. We should see something of the majesty of God when we look at the world around us. The psalmist says the heavens constantly display the glory of God. It's not like, well, if you, if you, if you turn away, you won't see it. If you, if you fall asleep, uh, some night and, and there's a shooting star, you, you, you'll miss the, the display of the glory of God. The psalmist uses language and, and tenses of verbs which describe that this is a constant display of the glory of God that we see in the heavens. It, the glory of God is the weight of God. It's often understood as the weightiness of God. Sometimes people were, were thought of um, in, in their glory by the weight of their stuff. The weight of, if you took their houses and their gold and their cars and their properties and you sort of put them on a scale, that weight would reveal their glory. Well, take the weight of God, the weight of the sun, the weight of the earth, the weight of the mountains, the weight of the oceans. The weight of the oars that are in ground, the, the weight of this world. Good grief, we can only pick up maybe one or two rocks, but this world demonstrates the ownership of God, demonstrates the weight of God. And he says the glory of God or the weight of God is displayed in the world around us. The skies and all that is in them, the universe that seems to stretch indefinitely day by day and night after night, unceasingly declares and displays and proclaims the glory of God. They are all the work of his hands and they declare his splendor. It's like uh, each, as each day passes to a next day, the baton of glory, of the revealed glory of God is passed to the next day. And, and, you know, it, it's almost like it's a, an accumulative thing, too, as we learn more and more about the world in which we live, and as we learn more and more through science about the creation God has made. This praise just wells up with ever-increasing weight and proclamation of the glory of God. And the baton is passed day after day after day of the of the glory and the revelation of God. And night after night, we look at the the stars and we see them in place and they're ordered and they guide us and they direct us and they determine seasons and times of the year. And night after night, that baton is passed which declares the glory of God. It's everywhere revealed to us. And then verse two, it says, "And, and day after day pours out speech. It's like in creation, the the words of God are bubbling up everywhere you look, that God speaks to the human heart in all of his creation, all over the place, constantly. It's like creation can't contain itself, and it just bursts forth in praise and declaration to the one who created it. Imagine the stars and the galaxies and the sun and the moon as they record their praise. Maybe it would, they would sing, this is my story, this is my song, praising my maker all the day long. It's this constant speech of creation. And David isn't here entering into an argument. He's not entering into an argument where someone was to prove that God exists in the world. We'll see a little bit later. David says this is safe, self-evident. It's everywhere. You you can't miss it. You have to rebelliously deny it. You have to suppress the truth that is revealed in creation to to say it's not true. David just assumes that we all see and hear the revelation of God in the world around us. And you say, well, how do you make sense of verse 3 where it says, well, there are no words. There is no voice. Uh, There is no speech. And then in verse 4, it says, on the other hand, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. How do you deal with that? Well, have you ever heard of the saying, a picture is worth a thousand words? That you don't have to have any words describing the picture. You look at the picture and it just bursts forth with speech. Have you ever, maybe as a child, been looked at by your mom or your dad and they didn't say a word, but you knew they were communicating a thousand things to you? (laughs) Have you ever been with your spouse and talking too much and your spouse either kicks you under the table or puts their hand on your knee and you know, okay, Paul, it's time to shut up. (laughs) You don't need words to communicate volumes. Think of the time when Jesus was in the courtyard as he was being... Um, Falsely accused of blasphemy. And he had told Peter, he said to Peter, You will, before the rooster crows three times, you will, or three times, you will have denied me three times. And Peter had denied him, and the rooster crows, and it says, Jesus looked at him, and he wept. Not a word was spoken, but a thousand words were heard by Peter. And so it's the same with creation. Around us, it's non-verbal communication. That it is speech that is absolutely clear, absolutely understood, without a word ever being uttered. And David sets his mouth and his heart to meditating, particularly on the sun. Arguably, arguably the element in the heavens which most impacts human life here on earth. It has a powerful effect on human life. Everything from keeping us alive, from ensuring that the food that we, that we, uh, that, that, that we plant grows uh, and that the food that we eat has something to eat itself. It, the, the sun has an impact on every single aspect of our life, so it seems. And he says God has taken the sun and he's placed it in the heavens as though in a tent and that there's not a spot in that uh, place that the sun doesn't have an impact on in one way or another. There's nothing and no one that escapes from its heat. He says it's like a bridegroom coming from his tent on his wedding day. There's a radiance about him. There's a, there's a, a, a shine to his look and his face as it rejoices in the wife that has been given to him. The sun also has got a radiant impact in our lives and our world. It, it shines its light. It dispels its heat that, that affects every one of us and all of us feel. He says it's like an athlete that's running its course with joy. Think about a world-class athlete, and some of you follow athletes, and you, you, you zero in on them, and you admire their training regime. You admire their accomplishments on the course or courts or on the ice or in the gymnasium, and you're in awe of what they accomplished. And the sun, in its power and its might and his majesty, also brings awe to our hearts and minds as we contemplate it its glory, and its strength. Think of what some of the most common pictures the world over. What are they of? The rising of the sun or the setting of the sun as we take pictures of sunsets and sunrises and display them on our Facebook pages and put them on our walls as we glory in the, in the wonder and the beauty of the sun as in its comings and its goings. Clearly, though, David wants us to understand that the sun is no deity As cultures in the past have worshipped it and as we sometimes look to the heavens for direction, the the psalmist would say, don't do that. These are simply creations of God set in the heavens to display his glory and his might and his power. He says, daily this glory is revealed as the sun makes its circuit around the earth. And we know that's phenomenological language. We know that it's the earth that rotates around its own axis and then around the sun, but our experience of the sun is that it rises and it sets, and and the psalmist says it dominates our life. And in its domination, it declares the glory and the wonder of God. As I said earlier, to deny and ignore the revelation of God displayed in the heavens is a deliberate act of the will. It's deliberate rebellion against God. For what can be known about God is plain to them, Paul writes, is plain to humankind, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. God says, I've made myself known in creation. Look at the sun, look at the stars, look at the moon, look at the things that swim in the sea, look at the things that fly in the air above the earth, look at the things that are on the ground. He says, all of them display my glory. They speak of my majesty. But still, countless people the world over deny it. Countless people the world over say there is no God. Countless people the world over say, no, God hasn't made himself known to me. There is no God in this world. A tragic exchange has taken place in their heart. Paul would say they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever and ever. David is saying it's an act of the will. It's a suppression of the truth that takes place in one's heart where they come to the place where they say, God didn't make that stuff. God isn't powerful. God isn't majestic. I don't see any evidence of God. This just blew into existence out of nothing. Loved ones, from a perspective of one who has come to hear the silent revelation of God in creation, isn't it amazing to know that we live in a world as children of God that gives fabulous continuous testimony to the existence of God and to his power and to his majesty and to know that there is not a single human being that consistently can escape the thought of this revelation except by a deliberate suppressing of the truth. It opens the doors for so many conversations that if you can enter into these conversations, I think it was Francis Safer who said that if he had five minutes with a person to explain the gospel, he would start in Genesis chapter one with the creation of the world. We have an open invitation to speak with people about what God has made absolutely clear about himself, that he exists. I wondered how Jesus would have thought about this psalm. Can you imagine him reading this as a little boy? And then going to Jerusalem, he was 12, and I have to be about the work of my father and knowing that this was his father's world. But then also coming to the conclusion where he said, I made that. Because it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and by him all things came into existence. As Jesus read this psalm, could you imagine? I I can't imagine as he walked through this world and as he more and more came to an understanding of of himself. I say that so dangerously. But he says, this declares my glory. This speaks of my majesty. This reveals my wisdom. And then when he would come to the part about the word of God, he would say, and I am that word. That just as the Word of God is sufficient for all things, well, I am that Word and I am sufficient for all the needs of all those who would trust in Christ. It's shocking to realize how Christ would have thought through this particular psalm. In verses 7 to 10, what should we hear about the Word of God? Well, what should we hear? We should hear the word of God, how it reveals his word to us. It's fascinating in this psalm that in the first six verses, there's only one reference to God. And it's God, L. It's a word used for the God above all gods. It's the word that is used of God 35 times in Genesis 1. It's the only word used of God in Genesis 1, where it describes his power, his might, his majesty, his transcendence, his otherness from creation. But when you come to verses 7 to 14, the word Yahweh is used seven times. And the word Yahweh is, 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 is the word Jehovah. It's referring to the covenant God of the people of God. It's, re, re, it's used for speaking of God who comes to walk with us and dwell with us and live with us. It's a personal name of God. And so David then describes the word of this Lord. He describes its character to us. He says it's the Torah, the law of God. It's more than his Ten Commandments when it refers to Torah. It's the doctrine, the teaching, the instruction, I think, probably of all the Old Testament. And then there's the testimonies of the Lord, uh, sometimes referred to as specifically the Ten Commandments, others to testimonies, things of God that are set in stone. The precepts of God, there's established words of the Lord that are to be kept by us. There's the commandment of the Lord, singular, and as I understand it, there's many commandments of the Lord, but as we come across each commandment, they are good for us and they are helpful for us. Uh, There's the fear of the Lord, and you say, well, how is the Bible described as the fear of the Lord? Well, the Bible is described as the fear of the Lord because in it, God is revealed to us. And it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The rules of the Lord are ordinances of the Lord, particular applications of God's will for our lives. And he describes this character of these words as perfect, without blemish, as sure, dependable, and reliable, as right, as characterized by integrity, as pure, being flawless, as true, being dependable. And the issue, I think, that the psalmist is getting at when he describes the Word of God, the character of God for us, is not so much that we would learn to discern, well, what's a commandment and what's a precept and what's the Torah and where's the, what's the rule that I'm supposed to follow here, although they are revealed in there, But what he's wanting us to do is see the total comprehensive picture of God's word. It is good and it is right and it is true and it is pure. And that should hit us like a ton of bricks. This valuable possession, this comprehensive understanding of God revealing his will to us. That when we look at the Bible, we see the multitude of ways that God provides for our life and direct our steps and how he cares for us and how he comes to know us. I don't know about you, I need instruction. I need direction. I need the principles of God's word to be drilled down into my heart. I need them to be chiseled into my heart of stone sometimes. I need to have the fullness and the comprehensive reality of God's word soaked into me completely and fully. And when someone, someone asks you, Why are you doing that? Or why do you do this? And why don't you do that? Our response should be, as we think about the word, well, it's right. Well, it's radiant. Well, it's sure. Well, this word refreshes me. This word revives me. This word makes me wise. This word gives me joy. This word endures forever. That's why I obey it. That's why I listen to it. That's why I heed it. Jesus said, I have come to do your will. And the same will that, of the Father that Jesus came to do ought to be our goal in life as well. Loved ones, there is no situation in life, there is no circumstance in life that you will ever face but that the word of the Lord is not sufficient for. This is what David wants us to understand. He wants us to understand that the word of God is not just another thing that we put on the shelf of self-help stuff and we pull it off the the tame or or that the word of God is good for a few circumstances, but then they have these books that are good for other circumstances. they have these counselors that are good for other circumstances. He says, no, all you need for life and godliness is the word of God, which reveals the will of God. God has shown his splendor and glory in the heavens. God reveals his will in the scripture. And when David comprehends that, he says, I've got to have it. I've got to have that. If it is what it claims to be, if it does what it claims to do, I've got to have that. And so then he says in verse 10, more desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than the drippings of the honeycomb. Do you see what David is trying to impress on us, loved ones? He's trying to impress on us the value of God's Word. He says, there is nothing else in this world that comes close to the value of the Word of God in its breadth, in its depth, in its height, in what it accomplishes in our lives, in what it reveals in our hearts. He says, there is nothing... That even comes close to it. Not even fine gold comes close to the value of God's word. And there's a pleasantness to it. Where Psalmist says somewhere else, "Taste and see that the Lord is good." He says it's it's sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb. It's more refreshing than a spoonful of honey. Does a spoonful of honey makes the medicine go down? I don't know. There's a pleasantness about God's Word, though, that he says, and he says, i got to have it. And he says, not only is it valuable, and not only is it enjoyable and pleasant, and I hope that is your experience as you read and contemplate the Word of God, but he says, I'm also warned by it. When I veer off course, when I'm about to make a wrong choice, the Word of God brings me back, shakes me into reality. Stopped me in my tracks. Don't go there. Don't do that. Don't say that. Don't think that. And there's great reward in keeping it. This is why David says in verse, I've got to have that in verse 10, 11. He's he's described the character. He's described the breath, and he says, I've got to have that. It's easy in our lives, though, to disconnect our ability to defend the inerrancy and the truthfulness of scripture and our own appreciation of its value. Are you pursuing anything more than you pursue the word and the ways of God? Is there something that you value more highly than the word of God? How do you spend your time? Where do you place the word of God in the priority of your life? See, we are able, and I am able to, rigorously defend why I believe this is the word of God, and I do believe it is the word of God. Without error, never changing, eternal word of God. But is it sweeter than honey to me? Is it more valuable than the greatest riches in this world to me. Is that evident in how I spend my time? Is it seen in how I think and how I depend upon the word of God? You see, it's possible for us to believe in the truthfulness of this word, but still not actually read it and still not actually Love it. And still come away at the end of the day and say it's not very sweet to me. One of the individuals I was reading was commenting on the life of William, William Tyndall. Some of you will you don't know that name William Tyndall from back in the 1500s. He was the individual who was responsible for Britain receiving the Bible in English. He translated the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into English. And he was a man that was hated by parts of the church. And he was in hiding when he was betrayed by a false friend and handed over to the care of the church for eventual execution. For some time, he was kept in prison awaiting that execution. And he knew winter was coming and he was preparing for the harsh realities. Their prisons weren't anything like our prisons. And hundreds of years later, a letter was found that he had sent To the governor of the prison, in part, this letter read this way, I entreat your lordship, and that by the Lord Jesus, that if I am to remain here during the winter, you will request the procurer to be kind enough to send me from my goods, which he has in his possession, a warmer cap. For I suffer extremely from cold in the head. And a warmer coat also, for that which I have is very thin and a piece of cloth to patch my leggings. I wish also for his permission to have a lamp in the evening, for it is wearisome to sit alone in the dark. But above all, I entreat and beseech your clemency to be urgent with the procurer that he may kindly permit me to have my Hebrew Bible. Commentator goes on, then he says, Some pathos in that a warmer cap, a warmer coat, a lamp at night, and above all, my Hebrew Bible. They strangled and burned him, but the sacred avarice for God's word remained to the last. Nor is this some special attitude that only revered Bible translators have. If the God who has quietly spoken his cosmic word has stooped to speak clearly in pronouns, participles, adverbs, and words of his Torah, Surely I should meet such godly grammar with an answering obsession. And his excellent word must be met by my unrelenting appetite. Did you catch those phrases that he used? A sacred avarice. Because David says, I covet your word. Covet is almost used universally negatively in the Bible. But here David speaks and he describes it as a secret avarice, a secret greed, a secret covering, coveting of God's word, and an answering obsession, and an unrelenting appetite for God's word. That is taking it from our head down to our heart. And then finally, what we should say, it's the wrestling of prayer that we see here in David. Notice he now personalizes, he says, your servant He's coming now to bend his knee to the God who made the heavens and the earth and the God who revealed himself in his word. You see, in reading the world book of God, the majesty of God is exposed to us. But in reading the book of Scripture, our hearts are exposed to God. In reading the Scripture, there's a depth to our sinfulness that is revealed by the light of God's word and that is seen by the heat of God's word, dark things, difficult things, hidden rebellions, undiscovered errors and hidden faults that only God's word can reveal. The truth of the matter is you and I have no idea how sinful we are. Do you know that? We have no idea how sinful we are and therefore David prays this amazing prayer ways of looking at it. The first is he delineates a dangerous path. Well, what can spoil my life? Well, he describes them there. My errors, hidden faults, presumptuous sins that want to have dominion over me. There's an anxiousness, an anxiety that you detect here about David. He's anxious to have all the stuff inside of him revealed. He's anxious to to have the willfulness in his heart revealed. He knows something of the enslaving power of sin. In verse 13, why is it that he starts verse 13 with then? Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. It seems that what he's saying is that if, if Yahweh through his word clears and cleanses him from hidden sins and holds him back from arrogant sins, then he will not commit great rebellion against God. He's, he's delineating a path for us. And, and I think almost all of us know that sometimes we can get off path just a little bit, and we, we start a little bit, and it's nothing big. And in fact, we don't even know we've strayed off path. But if we stay on that path and we don't recognize and we don't admit it, then all of a sudden we find ourselves deeper, and then we find ourselves in real trouble. And David is saying, it's the word of God that stops me at the steps of hidden sins. You know, the Bible describes inadvertent sins or unintentional sins or sins of ignorance. And those still need sacrifices. You read them in Leviticus chapter 4, and I think it's, it's Deuteronomy chapter 15. I could be wrong about that, but I know it's Leviticus 4, where the sacrifices are still necessary for unintentional sins. That's how sinful we are, that sometimes we just sin inadvertently or unintentionally. But David is describing a downward path here. Hidden sins, arrogant sins, great rebellion. Such a reality should drive us to earnest prayer before God and say, God, let your word expose those hidden places of my heart. But then there's a complete cleansing that could also be being described here. To come under the cleansing power of God's word. There's first a conviction that comes when we read the word of God. The word of God has an, an incredible way of exposing us this is why somebody has said that sin will keep you from the Bible, or the Bible will keep you from sin. That, that when you read it, it exposes not only our acts, but it says it exposes the intents and the motives of our hearts. It is that precise in its ability to detect where we've gone wrong. In Pilgrim's Progress, I don't know if any, many of you have read it, but it's a great book to read. Uh, in Pilgrim's Progress... Um, He's walking down the road, and he encounters Mr. Worldly Wiseman. And Mr. Worldly Wiseman notices this great burden on the back of Pilgrim. And he asks him, where did you get that burden? And Pilgrim responds from reading this book. But then Mr. Worldly Wiseman says, well, do you want me to get rid of that burden? Or how are you going to get rid of that burden? And Pilgrim responds along the lines of, how do you suggest? And he says, well, legalism. Pilgrim doesn't take that path. He eventually finds himself to the cross in Christ who removes the burden from him. There's kind of an illustration, and I close with this, found in C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treaders, book five. It's the story of a transformation of a, just an ugly little boy, and I don't mean that in looks, just his character. The very first sentence of the book describes this little boy he's, his name is Eustace Scrub. I love that name, Eustace Scrub. He's rude, he's irritable. He's downright mean, little boy, and nobody likes him, and eventually Eustace turns into a dragon. At the end of the book, the, the, the first sentence describes how irritable and rude and naughty Eustace is, and the very last. Sentence of the book describes how nobody could recognize him when he came back from Narnia because he had transformed so much. But he turned into a dragon. But he hates it. He hates life as a dragon. It's terrible, and he wants nothing more to be than to be returned to a little boy again. And he tells Edmund, he says, "I I, I won't tell you how I became a dragon. That's for everybody else." But I want to tell you how I stopped being a dragon. He describes the pain that he had and how he wanted to get rid of this pain. He met Aslan along the way, and Aslan is a picture of Christ in the tales of Narnia. And Aslan takes him to a mountaintop garden, fresh spring of water. And Eustace wants to jump into the spring and go for a swim to relieve his pain. But Aslam tells Yusuf he wants to be changed back to a little bit, a little boy again and wants to be relieved of his pain, he must undress again. And he doesn't mean take off his clothes, but he's a dragon and he needed to get rid of his dragon skin. He began scratching himself and sure enough, scales began to fall off of him all over the place. He scratched even deeper and the skin began to peel away like a banana, he says, But with each layer, he realized another and yet another layer. No matter how he scratched, no matter how many scales fell off, there was always another layer. That's when Aslan said, you will have to let me undress you, Eustace recounts to Edmund. I was afraid of his claws. I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab off of a sore place, it hurts like Billy. Oh, but it's such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only that hadn't hurt. And there it was, his dragon skin lying on the grass only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as smooth and as soft and as, as a peeled switch and as smaller than I have been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. He threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And after that, it became perfectly delicious, as I soon as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And that's when I saw I had turned into a boy again. We need God to peel off the scales of our sin. We can't do it ourselves. We can't rid ourselves of this burden that we bear. It's the word of God that exposes those dragon scales and then it's the work of Christ that dispenses of those dragon scales. It's the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why when we come to this table this morning, this table is a reminder to us of our return to humanness. This table reminds us of a cleansing that we who participate in it have experienced. This table should take us back to the moment when we realized we were first pain-free, first cleansed of all the sin that so weighed us down. This table is a reminder of God's final revelation to us in Jesus Christ, how he has come to free us and cleanse us and forgive us, to strip away the layers of our rebellion, to de-scale us, so to speak. As the Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. God's word reveals to us the way we are made whole. Father, I thank you for Psalm 19 and its instruction to us of the way you have revealed yourself to us and i thank you for david's understanding of his need of the word because of the way that it could cleanse him the way that it could save him the way that it could warn him of its value and of its pleasantness to him father i thank you that you have made yourself known to so many of us through your word as well as through the world And as we gather around the table, those who know you this morning, where there be a rejoicing in our hearts of how your word has pointed us to your final revelation in Jesus Christ, who is able to deal with our sins and cleanse us and remove the pain of those things and make us new. We pray these things in Christ's name, amen.